everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and how it informs our lives today. I'm your local mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live here in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. I hope that you all had a happy Independence Day. I have to say, I've always liked that name for the July 4th, and of course we all know the history behind it, but it also fits in rather nicely with the theme of the stories that we're working with right now. Today's story is The King and the Corpse, and like the story of Abu Qasim and the Slippers that I told last week, this is a Persian tale that I dearly love that is also found in a collection by Henrik Zimmer, edited by Joseph Campbell, called The King and the Corpse, Tales of the Soul's Conquest of Evil. Tales of the Soul's Conquest of Evil. There are lots of different directions that one could go with an idea that big. But the realization that is contained in these stories is this. What we judge to be good and bad is often jumbled together in our nature. And if we get too pure, or rather, if we imagine ourselves as pure, as just good, however we define that, then we might develop a kind of blindness. And then we are susceptible. We might do evil without intending it, and we may tempt fate, that was Abu's slippers, to bring us down, to set us up for a fall. When that happens, we don't like it at the time. But as we saw in the story of Abu, it's actually a gift. An important lesson gets learned when we get a wake-up call like that. Maybe you've had a few of those. I know that I have. Sometimes I do things with the absolute conviction that I am right that I am even helping, only to discover that I was making some seriously wrong assumptions and botching up the works instead. What we often need in those situations is a good dose of humility, and that is a clue to unraveling today's story, if you are so inclined. Anyway, continuing challenging our cherished self-images and questioning ourselves is part of evolving consciousness, and it's a moral obligation. This is true for us as individuals, and it's true for communities and nations. I like to think that Independence Day, July 4th, can be a day when we reflect on our ideals, the good that we do, and where we fall short. And if that gets done honestly, then we see ourselves as citizens, and as a country a bit more clearly. That's an important part of independence. So, I first became aware of this story, The King and the Corpse, when I saw the documentary film Mythic Journeys by Stephen and Whitney Bowe. They interview some very interesting people about the power of myth, Robert Walter, who is the president of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, for example. Michael Mead, who's one of my personal heroes. Deepak Chopra. 
And this story, which they call The Bone Orchard, is a kind of subplot that weaves through the background of their documentary. You can look for Mythic Journeys online if this sounds intriguing to you. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, and see where this story takes you. The moments that grab your interest can tell you something about how this story may be operating in your life today. Part 1 of The King and the Corpse It was really quite remarkable how the king became involved in this particular adventure. For 10 years, he had been appearing in his audience chamber where he sat in state hearing the petitions of his citizens. And every day of those 10 years, a holy beggar had appeared and offered him a piece of fruit. Every time he offered the king this piece of fruit as a gift and without saying a word would turn around and vanish back into the crowd of citizens gathered there. And the king, for his part, took the fruit and passed it to his treasurer who was standing behind his throne without giving this trifling gift another thought. The treasurer, for his part, took the fruit and every day he just tossed it through a window down into the treasury house without ever even bothering to unlock the door. So this went on for 10 years. And then one day, it so happened that a tame monkey had escaped from the women's apartments in the palace and come bounding into the stateroom about the same time that the beggar showed up with his fruit. Just as the holy man handed the king the fruit, the monkey bounded up onto the arm of his throne. And playfully, the king offered the monkey the piece of fruit. When the animal bit into it, a valuable jewel dropped out and rolled across the floor. Now the king's eyes grew wide. With great dignity, he turned to the treasurer who was standing beside the throne and said, Tell me, uh, what has happened to the rest of the fruit? And the treasurer, of course, didn't know since he had just been throwing them through the window. So he immediately excused himself and rushed over to the treasury house. And when he unlocked the door and went into the room, there beneath the little window where he had been tossing the fruit was a huge pile in various states of decay. And among this decaying fruit, there was a jumble of precious, precious jewels. The king was very pleased at this turn of events, but because he was a very generous king and not one who was particularly interested in accumulating additional wealth, he gave the entire heap of gems to his treasurer. 
He wasn't really that interested in the gems, but he was very curious now about this holy beggar. So the next day, when the holy man once again appeared and offered him a piece of fruit, the king said, no, no, I'm not going to take your gift unless you and I have a little conversation. Well, your majesty, said the monk, um, if we could speak privately, that would be a good thing. So the king granted his desire, and the two men sat across from each other, and the king said, okay, tell me what is the meaning of these gifts of fruit? Well, said the holy beggar, I am in need of help, and I need the assistance of a hero, a truly intrepid man, to assist me in a certain enterprise of magic. Oh, said the king, who is now very interested, go on. It is said, the magician went on, that the weapons of true heroes are especially powerful in the face of magic, that they have a sort of exorcising power. Yes, said the king, go on. Well, said the holy man, I'm wondering if you would come on the night of the next new moon to the great funeral ground on the edge of the city, the place where the dead are cremated and the criminals hanged. Do you think you could meet me then? And the king, despite the rather unsavory location of this meeting, was undaunted, and he said, Yes, I will meet you on the next new moon. And with that, the beggar ascetic took his leave. Soon the appointed night arrived. It was the night of the new moon. And the king girded himself, he put on his sword, he wrapped himself in a dark cloak, and all alone he set out on his adventure. When he got to the burial ground, he became very aware of the odd sounds of the restless spirits and the demons that were hovering around the place, feasting on what was left of the dead. There was no light in the place except for that glowing embers of the smoldering funeral pyres. And he could see the ghouls and the demons feasting on the blackened skeletons. It was a pretty grim sight. But the king, being a brave man, was not afraid. And he went on to the appointed rendezvous. At last he found his sorcerer, the beggar magician, intently drawing a magic circle on the ground. Here I am, the king said. What can I do for you? 
The other man hardly lifted up his eyes. He just said, Go to the other end of the burning ground, and you will find the corpse of a hanged man dangling from a large tree. Cut down the corpse and bring it here to me. The king turned around and set off back across this large graveyard. It was very dark. Remember, it was a new moon. And again, he was aware of the sound of the demons and the ghosts and the ghouls swirling around. But he wasn't afraid. And when he got to the far edge of the graveyard, he saw, indeed, a large tree with a body hanging from it. He climbed up the tree and cut the rope with his sword, and the corpse fell down to the ground. But oddly enough, when it hit the ground, it gave a moan as if it had been hurt. This astonished the king, of course, and so when he climbed back down, he went over to the body, and he started to kind of grope and feel around, thinking that maybe there was still some life in it. As he was doing this, there was a shrill laugh from the body. And the king realized that, in fact, it was a corpse. It was quite dead, but it was inhabited by a ghost. What are you laughing at? he demanded. And the instant that he spoke, the corpse, just like that, flew back up to the limb of the tree. The king looked up at the body. And then he climbed back up the tree again, very patiently, and once again cut it down with his sword. But this time, when he went back down and picked up the corpse, he didn't say a word. He just put it on his shoulder and started to walk back to the bigger magician. But he hadn't gone very far when the ghost in the corpse said, O king, O king, hello, why don't you let me shorten the way for you with a little tail? The king, smartened up to the ploy of the corpse, of course, didn't say a word. I'll take that as a yes, then, said the corpse. Let me tell you a little story. And so he began. Here is my story. There was, said the corpse, once upon a time, a certain prince who went out on a hunting party with his friend. Now his friend happened to be the son of the chancellor of the prince's father. And the two of them were out hunting, and they lost track of the rest of their companions. And so it was just the two of them strolling rather aimlessly through the forest when they arrived at a very pleasant lake. They stopped on the banks to rest. And the prince saw a beautiful maiden bathing on the far side, on the other bank. And unobserved by her companions, she was making signals to him across the water. The prince couldn't figure out 
what it was she was signaling, but the chancellor's son caught the meaning of her signs very well. This beautiful young maiden communicated to them her name, that of her family, and the name of her kingdom. She also indicated that she was in love with the prince. Then she got up and turned around and uh, vanished into the foliage, rejoining her companions, and the two young men got up and went back home. Intrigued, the next day, the two of them, claiming that they were going out hunting, set off through the jungle and again separated themselves from the rest of their friends, and they went to the town where the girl lived. And there they found lodging with an old woman whom they bribed to take a message to the young girl. Now, all of this required a certain amount of subterfuge, of course, because in this culture at this time, a young man and a young woman were not going to meet without the arrangements being at least approved, if not set up, by the parents. So the old woman went as messenger, and the girl, to her credit, was so cunning that she managed to send a message back to the prince without the old woman realizing that a rendezvous was being organized. The first time they had decided to get together, the visit had to be postponed because the astrological omens were not adequate. But then the next night they decided to go ahead and the prince went to the girl's house, climbed over the wall, crossed the garden, found her window, and went into her room. And of course the two young lovers found a great deal of delight in each other's arms. When the girl learned that It was not the prince who understood her signals, but rather his friend. She got a little bit concerned. Privately, she worried that this third party might rat her out and reveal her affair to somebody. And so, without saying anything to the prince, she made a plan to poison his friend. Now, the son of the chancellor was obviously a pretty clever guy himself, and he had foreseen this possibility. So he came up with a plan to foil her and to teach her once and for all that he knew how to take care of himself and how to take care of his prince. He disguised himself as a beggar monk, and he persuaded the prince to pretend that he was one of his pupils. And the two of the young men went back to the girl's kingdom, but this time they went to the king. Now, the king in that kingdom was grief-stricken because his infant son had recently died. And the chancellor's son, dressed up in disguise as a beggar's monk, convinced the king that this young girl was a witch who was responsible for the death of his son. There was no way for the girl to fight off the accusations, 
and she was condemned to a terrible death. Namely, she was left naked and exposed on the outside of town, where the wild animals would eventually kill and eat her. She was left there wailing and crying, her family very upset. And as soon as she was all alone, then the prince and his friend rode up on swift horses and rescued her, taking her back to the prince's kingdom where she could become his wife and future queen. Happy for everybody, right? But not exactly. The girl's parents were so ashamed and so grief-stricken over the disgrace and the loss of their daughter, whom they believed to be dead, that their hearts broke and they died. So that's the end of my story, the corpse said to the king. But now tell me, who was guilty of the death of these two old people? If you know the answer and you do not reply, my king, your head will burst into a hundred pieces. Now, the king believed that he knew the answer, but of course he was afraid that if he said anything, the corpse was going to go immediately flying back to the tree. Nevertheless, he did not want his head to explode, and so he answered the question. Neither the maid nor the prince was guilty, he said, because they were madly in love. And the son of the chancellor was not guilty because he was merely fulfilling his responsibility in service to his master, the prince. The only one that is guilty is the king of that girl's country because he let these things come to pass within his realm. First of all, he did not see the subtle trick that was played on him as a result of his grief. He didn't notice that the men were in disguise. In fact, he'd never even taken cognizance of the activities of these two strangers in his very own capital. He wasn't even aware they were there. So he is guilty of failure in his kingly duty because a king should be the all-seeing eye of his kingdom, the all-knowing protector and governor of his folk. As soon as the king had uttered his last word of judgment, the corpse moaning in mock agony vanished from his arms, and the king knew that it was once again hanging from the tree. He walked back to the big tree, and sure enough, there was the corpse. With a sigh, he climbed back up into the tree. He cut the corpse down again. He went down. He threw it over his shoulder and started off again in silence. My dear sir, the corpse addressed him again. Well, you have encumbered yourself with a very difficult and curious task. You'll permit me, I imagine, to tell you another story to while away the time we've got here together. And the king said nothing. And so the corpse again began to tell yet another tale. This time he said, Once upon a time, 
there were three young Brahmins who had all lived for a while in the home of their spiritual teacher. Now, all three of these men were spiritual seekers and they were all brothers and they were all in love with their teacher's daughter. He did not give her to any one of the young men for fear of breaking the hearts of the other two. But then the young girl became seriously ill and died, and all three of the men, equally desperate, committed her body to the funeral pyre. When she had been cremated, the first man decided that he would give vent to his grief by wandering the world as a beggar monk. The second young man decided that he would deal with his grief by gathering the bones of his beloved from the ashes and taking them to the Holy Ganges River where they could be washed, ensuring that she would have a safe journey to the next realm. And the third young man, he decided that he would deal with his grief by staying right there on the spot with her. He constructed a hermit's hut over the place of the fire and stayed there and slept in the ashes of the body of his beloved. Now, the one who decided to roam the world experienced an extraordinary event one day. He saw a man read from a book a magic charm that brought a child back to life. And so he took the book and hurried back to the cremation scene. It just so happened that just as he arrived with the book, the young man who had gone to the Ganges came back with the bones. And of course, the third young man was already there in the ashes. They agreed to reassemble her bones and lay them out in the ashes. And then using the book and the magic spell, the first one managed to bring her back to life. And of course, she was even more beautiful than ever. And so, the corpse asked the king, To whom does she belong? And don't forget, if you know the answer and you do not reply, your head will explode. And of course, the king thought that he knew the answer, and so he was forced to reply. The one who recalled her to life with the magic spell, he said, acted as a father to her. And the one who did the pious service of taking her bones to the Ganges performed the duty of a son. But the one who slept on the ashes and would not leave her, he devoted his life to her, and he is the one who acted as her spouse. Well, as soon as the king finished answering the questions, the corpse disappeared, boom, click, and was back in the tree. And once again, the king had to walk back to the tree and cut down the corpse. We're in a rather mysterious situation, don't you think? Something's going on. But this is where I'm going to leave you and the story for now. And I will tell the rest of it 
next week. I think we can do it in one more week. Maybe it'll take two. In any event, uh, if you mull over the story in the days to come, consider what I was saying earlier about blindness and what we think we know and don't know, not just about our situations, but about ourselves. So that's it for me this week, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or feel free to email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com. You can find these stories and many others like them at www.catherinesavela.com. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music and to Rags and Bones for producing this show, and most of all, to you for listening. Please tune in next week for the conclusion of The King and the Corpse. And in the meantime, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.